Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. It's only about three years ago that our ocean campaigners set out to make a global plastics treaty a reality, spreading awareness of the need for such an instrument in the context of the mounting environmental emergency of runaway plastic pollution. They engaged with experts and decision makers, hosted webinars and reached out to engage with other organisations on the issue. At the end of this month, the United Nations Environment Assembly, or UNEA, is due to negotiate the mandate for creating a global plastics treaty, and ahead of it, we released a scientist declaration. It was endorsed by scores of experts around the world, and warned political leaders that the treaty must be based on hard scientific evidence if it's to be at all effective. I'm Paul Newman, EIE's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today I'm joined by Christina Dixon, our Ocean Campaign's Deputy Leader, to talk about the Global Plastics Treaty and what we can expect at UNEA when it meets in Nairobi. Chris, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts. Thanks, Paul. Uh, before we get to the forthcoming meeting, would you perhaps start by telling us why the world needs a Global Plastics Treaty in the first place? Of course, Paul. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's at the crux of this really, isn't it? Um, so I think we've all seen over the past few years um, a rising awareness about how bad plastic pollution really is, you know, ranging from, you know, these ubiquitous images of, I don't know, a turtle with a straw up its nose, right through to, you know, mounds of unmanaged plastic waste um, in landfills. And it's not really an overstatement to say that we're on the brink of an environmental catastrophe. The issue of plastic pollution, it intersects with the biodiversity loss issues, with the climate emergency, with human rights. And, and what we're seeing is that plastic production is increasing Yet at the same time, our global waste management systems, so how we actually dispose of plastic, they're completely overwhelmed. So we can't cope with the amount of plastic we're producing, um, but there's nothing in place. No framework currently exists for addressing it. We've seen lots of corporate commitments. You know, last week it was Coca-Cola making a commitment around reusable bottles. You know, we see these types of things from industry all the time, but essentially it's ultimately all voluntary in nature. There's nothing binding at the global level that's going to hold people to account. The, the wild thing is that we don't even really know how much plastic is even being produced. Right now, we're reliant on figures that are reported by industry, self-reported figures, um, to understand how much plastic's out there. So right now, what's really needed is a global treaty on plastic pollution or on plastics that will establish the framework to help us understand how much plastic is out there and then how we're going to manage it. I know it's taken you and your colleagues a lot of hard work to come so far so quickly. Uh, would you give us a brief rundown on the latest developments, um, such as the scientist declaration? What, what was that all about? So, Paul, there is a lot going on at the moment, and it's kind of tricky to even know where to begin. But perhaps the the scientists' declaration is a really is a good starting point. Um, so. As we're drawing closer to UNEA, we're seeing a lot of media um, related to the treaty. We're seeing lots of different groups speak up. I mean, even the plastics industry have been coming out in support of a treaty recently. We saw a statement signed by the likes of Unilever, uh, Nestle and Coke saying that they would like a treaty that also um, addresses plastic production and use. It's, it's, it's crazy out there. Um, and then most recently, it was the scientists declaration, which was formally launched this week. And the numbers are, are rocketing up at the moment. But I think at last count, it was around two or 300 scientists who've, who've backed this call um, for a treaty. And what that does, um, which is, you know, different to the industry calls or the call to action from civil society, is that it really makes the, the scientific case um, for why we need a treaty. Not that we were lacking in evidence before, but it's the first time that a credible group of experts like this have really laid out um, 
what we know and the fact is that we what we do know is that we have enough evidence to act um you know one of the the things that you you often hear when it comes to negotiating things like the treaty is that we still you know we're still fact finding but you know of course fact finding is good policy making um but we have enough facts to act um and so the scientists essentially were saying in this declaration Here's some of the most startling figures just from the most recent research that's available. Here's here's what we can predict is going to happen if we don't act. And this is our, our call to action. Um, and we launched that declaration at a webinar last week uh, with some of the world's leading plastic scientists kind of making that case. Um, and it's really, really powerful uh, to, to hear that because scientists aren't aren't known for being, um, how to say, I, know, I don't know, too emotive yeah, yeah or controversial <laughs> you know um their reputation is staked on on the claims that they're making um and the fact that there are these scientists who are willing to put their name and say we need a treaty on plastics and we need it now you know that's really big yeah that's excellent i mean i guess your point is that obviously real scientists really follow the science and they're, they're not given to hyperbole and that having a body of people like that endorse the, the need for action um, is, is hopefully going to be taken more seriously by decision makers. Is that is that kind of the position we're in? Absolutely, yeah. I think that um, when you add the scientists' declaration to the mix, we've now got um, business and industry, including investors, they're calling for a treaty. We've got nearly 1,000 civil society organizations, basically NGOs, who've also signed up to this, this call to action for the need for an ambitious treaty. And now we've got the scientists as well, plus two-thirds of countries and growing who are also asking for this. So this is no longer, you know, and it hasn't been for some time, any kind of fringe issue or, or you know, this is, this is happening. And we now have a very diverse group of stakeholders saying that we need it. I noticed that when we started working on plastics, you know, I, I do regular media monitoring, looking for the issues that occur in the international press. And there was barely anything on plastics three or four years ago. And, and, and now in the last kind of two or three years, it's really ramped up to the point where there's something being said about it somewhere in the media around the world almost every day. Plastics is an issue that has captured the kind of attention of the global community in a way that many other issues haven't. And I think that that's because plastics are so pervasive. We interact with plastics in almost every aspect of our lives. From the moment we're born, pretty much, we're handed a bottle made of plastics, you know, to drink milk from. Um, and that just continues. And what's increasingly evident is that plastic is polluting at every stage of its life cycle. And even, you know, I don't know, for just to give you an example, I, a couple of years ago, I bought my new nephew some recycled plastic toys to chew on basically like chew toys and there i was thinking i was doing the right thing because i was i didn't want to buy you know you know new single-use plastic junk i wanted to get something that was recycled but now studies have shown that there's toxic chemicals you know plastics are inherently toxic in their makeup and so just by recycling things and buying things made out of recycled plastics people think they're doing the right thing but actually it's just toxic recycling um so we're just perpetuating a problem so these are all the types of issues that a treaty needs to get at. Um, and I think that's why, you know, the idea of, of children being exposed to toxic plastic exposure, um, I think that's why it's really, it's, you know, got people's attention. Well, yeah, I was reading a story um, only a few months ago. It was horrifying that they'd established the, the, the degree and commonality of plastic being found in, in fetal tissue. 
like it's, it's literally in you from before you're born even uh, and it's like we're becoming what, almost semi-synthetic um, people because yeah. we've got so much of this stuff in us the whole time. Yeah, it's hardly a day that goes by that um, a new a new piece of research is published, which just further substantiates the case that plastics are everywhere and they're polluting everywhere. Um, we've seen them in yeah. There's there's these um, studies about placental transfer, also you know finding plastic in the arctic on mount everest um, in the mariana trench this is literally a problem that is everywhere there isn't a person animal or a place that hasn't been touched by plastics and plastic pollution and i guess we can't run away from it we've got to fix it we've got to face it and deal with it absolutely and i think that's why the treaty is so relevant because the the movement of plastics throughout their life cycle it's inherently transboundary right i mean things that we buy from supermarkets here in the UK. We use them here, but then often they're sent for recycling, but they're exported to another country for management. And then another country has to manage our plastic waste. And often it's mismanagement, not management, because we're overwhelming those systems with our our exported plastic waste. Um, we have plastic, you know, that, I don't know, I could throw a bottle off of a ship, you know, a message in a bottle and it washes up on an island somewhere, you know, two or three years later, it's not degrading in the marine environment and it's transboundary. It's just moving with oceanic currents or moving with the air. So we really need to recognize that, you know, we don't have the best plastic legislation in the UK. It's quite good, but it's not the best. Um, but it doesn't really matter if it's the best or not, because it's something that the global community needs to act on. It's not an individual issue. It's a collective issue. Yeah, because as you said, the pollution ends up everywhere. And I gather often in, in the backyards of countries that had nothing to do with creating it in the first place. Exactly, yeah. So looking look ahead to the end of this month, um, what exactly is UNEA? And, and why do you think this moment is so critical for deciding the fate of plastics? So I have to be very careful not to veer too far off into policy wonk territory. And I'll try my <laughs> best to do that. But I'll try um, and rein you in if you do. <laughs> But I think, um, you know, UNEA is something that I'm really excited about. So hopefully some of my enthusiasm is, is contagious and you'll bear with me. <laughs> but basically, UNEA is the UN Environment Assembly. So that is the most significant environmental decision-making body in the world. It takes place every couple of years. Um, currently, it's been delayed due to COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic, as have many other environmental and um, international processes. But we are meeting now in person and virtually in the next couple of weeks. And there's a range of different issues on the table um, for this UNEA. Plastics isn't the only one, but plastics is by far the one that is getting the most attention. I think you know, the nations of the world are recognizing that this is like the moment to do something about plastics. Um, at each UNEA that came before this, um, the way that it works is, is basically that countries put forward resolutions. So a resolution is essentially a text where um, countries are calling they're sort of stating a problem and then calling for specific actions to be taken. And at each UNEA, we're at UNEA five now, at each one before, we started to see a growing recognition and a growing urgency related to the problem of plastic pollution. It started off talking about marine litter, microplastics, uh, and each time it became more pressing. Um, in 2017, UNEA decided to establish what's known as AHEG, the Ad Hoc Open-Ended Expert Working Group on Marine Litter and Microplastics. And I'm sorry just, that that's such a mouthful. Just flows off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, just really, really natural. Um, and basically what AHEG did was undertake a substantial body of work to look at what we know about plastic pollution um, and how is it being governed? 
what's the current state of play, what needs to happen. And what that group concluded is that we need a global agreement, basically. Um, there's lots happening, but it's fragmented from the actions that are being taken to address it, to the understanding of the problem, to the way that finance is directed towards solutions. It's completely disparate and it's not coordinated. And the, what, the role that a global treaty would do it would take, sorry, is to, to kind of coordinate and drive that action. Um, so it would kind of gather the world around a common objective and then drive action towards it. And then now we're seeing as we move towards this UNEA that it's really a critical moment. Um, over two thirds of countries have um, expressed support for some kind of global agreement. We've seen the G7, the G20, um, all these different regional groups from the Nordic Council to the Pacific Islands making declarations that say, this is something we need. Um, and these are, you know, different, very different groups. You know, Pacific Island countries are very different to the G7. Um, they have different needs and priorities, but they're all saying this is a problem and we need to act now. So this is a point of huge momentum that we're at. Um, and I think there's been some incredibly visual examples of how bad plastic pollution is and can be um, over the last couple of years, which have, have really galvanized this as well. I think one example is um, the Express Pearl uh, ship that sank off the coast of Sri Lanka, and it mm. spilled thousands and thousands of plastic pellets into the ocean, costing millions in cleanup um, and devastating the marine environment and the coastal community, you know, that that area can't be fished anymore because there's plastic pe pellets um, littering the beaches and in the ocean. Uh, marine wildlife is being severely impacted um, and it's costing the economy a huge amount of money. Um, and somebody has to pick up the bill for this. Um, yeah, so these, yeah. are, these are all issues that are, are capturing public attention and political attention. And now it feels like there's the political will to do something. So we better strike while the iron's hot, yeah? Exactly, yeah. So, well, I mean, could you tell us a bit without necessarily going into too much detail, um, but, but what, what kind of proposals are going to be on the table at UNEA? Um, I mean, for example, do you see any indication that there's any sort of general consensus as to what we as a planet should collectively do about it? Or are we going to come down to a contest between different factions wanting to make different levels of binding commitments or, or no commitments at all? It's a good question, um, and I'll try to keep the response um, as straightforward as I can. But one thing I would say as well is that the situation is very dynamic, so it's evolving by the day. But um, until a couple of weeks ago, we had two proposals on the table, and one was from Rwanda and Peru, and one was from Japan. And in many ways, they were quite similar, which is, is really good. So they were both calling to establish an INC, which is an intergovernmental negotiating committee to negotiate a new global agreement. So that's great. And they both called for a quick negotiation. So they were saying that in recognition of all of the body of work that's already been undertaken, we think that we can get this treaty quickly. So in time for UNEA 6. Um, and there was lots of overlap in content, you know, around um, national action planning, how the treaty should coordinate, that kind of thing. So all of that's really positive. But there are some kind of key differences, which actually are really important. And this is where you, you, you do get into the weeds of stuff. But for example, um, Japan talks about the problem with the framing of marine litter, marine litter and plastic pollution. Um, whereas Rwanda and Peru are talking about plastic pollution in all environments. So, you know, that could be the air, the sea, land, etc. Um, and this is really important because if we establish at the outset that we understand that plastic pollution is everywhere, it's not just a marine issue, um, 
then that provides the, the eventual treaty that we'll get with the capacity to address plastic pollution across all of these different sources, including, for example, at production, at product design stage, and so on. Um, whereas if we go down this road where we're really only talking about the impacts on the marine environment, it does limit the scope of the treaty quite significantly. And so that's one of the key areas at the moment that is, is being discussed. What is the scope of the treaty? Um, and also, will will the treaty address things like plastic production? Um, and at the moment, the Rwanda-Peru draft, which has over, I think it's 60 co-sponsors at the moment, versus Japan, which only has three, um, they're very much pushing this life cycle approach and they're defining the life cycle. So they're saying, we think the life cycle includes things like sustainable production and consumption of plastics. It includes things like product design and use. Um, and that degree of detail is very helpful because it understands where those it helps us understand where those countries are coming from when they envis envision the issue. Um, the other thing uh, which I think is really important to note is that a couple of weeks ago, India came out with another proposal. Um, and this was something on quite a different track, actually. So what India have come out with is saying that actually we shouldn't have an INC. Um, do, you know, do we even need a global agreement? Maybe we should just have a voluntary framework, which kind of coordinates action. So, uh, and it would be really, their proposal is really focused on single use plastic product pollution as they term it. Um, so at the moment that resolution and the, the 11th hour at which it's entered the discussions has really thrown the cat among the pigeons really, because there'd been quite a productive process um, with the kind of pre-negotiations to talk about how we can merge the proposal from Rwanda and Peru and the proposal from Japan. And there's quite a bit of alignment. So a merge isn't necessarily, you know, a bad thing. Although of course, you know, we really want the co-sponsors of the Rwanda-Peru resolution to kind of hold these red lines, the things that we think are important through that process of merging. But now we have India, which is really on a different, you know, coming at it from a completely different angle. It's not really clear how that will be dealt with in the negotiations. So understanding you know, what India really wants to get out of this and how that's going to be dealt with in the negotiations. That's one of the, the sort of big political issues that we're facing as we go into into the negotiations. So we'll just talk briefly about the, the mechanics of how this new treaty is even going to be negotiated. Is this going to be a matter of representatives of the, the Indian suggestion and the Rwandan suggestion sitting in a room and seeing if they can find common ground? Or is it going to be there's a vote and they dismiss one option because it's not anywhere close to what they want and they start focusing on the remainder. Is, is that how it works? So it's quite interesting. So UNEA is, is basically consensus. So they can have a vote, but it's really a last resort. So for the most part, there'll be attempts to try and reach a consensus way before there's discussion of having a vote. Um, there's the meeting itself, which is happening, uh, I think, from the 28th of February. But in a way, what happens at UNEA itself is really like the the rubber stamping. In theory, and I say in theory because lots can happen between now and then, um, in theory, the negotiations should actually be concluded in advance of UNEA. So the text that's been agreed by states is kind of what then goes to be agreed, like formally agreed at UNEA, or adopted at UNEA, should I say. Um, so we spent the last couple of months in this like pre-negotiation phase and that's been happening virtually for the most part in but in Nairobi, which is where UNEA sits. And the group, basically, there's this a body called the Committee of Permanent Representatives, which is the, the representatives of, of countries in Nairobi who are getting together to try and thrash this all out. So 
you know, most days this week, for example, there's been meetings where everybody's just trying to reach some agreement before we go into the kind of critical negotiations around the actual formation of the text. What most countries have been asking for is that we get one single text to work with. Um, so the week before UNEA, they really want to be negotiating one block of text. And it's not really just down to the proponents of the resolutions, it's down to everybody to like work with the text. So um, the kind of pre-negotiation phase, Rwanda and Peru and Japan have been brought together by the facilitators to see, you know, where can they reach agreement on merging? Um, and so today, for example, was a session where we were discussing, you know, what, what comes next with the merged draft. Um, in kind of just general sense, the way this kind of thing normally works is you end up with some kind of document which is a bit like, you know, at work when you receive something with loads of track changes all over it. Um, <laughs> and so the kind of UNEA or UN equivalent is a document with lots of brackets. And brackets is essentially all of the stuff that's up for discussion. Um, and then you'll essentially work through this document paragraph by paragraph, you know, all of the countries will input and say, we like that formation of the text. We don't like that formation. Let's remove this. Let's add that. Um, and there'll be lots of meetings happening, you know, in the corridors while people try to get some consensus to, to move towards a, an agreed final text. Um, and this is really, you know, the real like nerd stuff, you know, like <laughs> if you say, and does it, is it more powerful than or, you know, and this, and, and these it words. It drills right down into the, yeah, the very basics these, of it. These words have so much weight um, because essentially the text that you have is what sets the foundation for what the, uh, the INC will be ne negotiating. So what the treaty actually looks like. So people like EIA and our partner NGOs will really be pushing for the most ambitious language. And that means basically approaching approaching people, having conversations, hosting events, um, and, and pushing that language, you know, those ands and ors, um, whether you say marine or not, um, <laughs> these things are really important. Um, and that's, that's the kind of bread and butter of what we do. Excellent. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to touch on, um, obviously big oil has been a major presence in the production of plastics. And I've read, I mean, you probably read the same articles, um, a lot of coverage and speculation over the last few years that the international oil giants, which previously produced many of the fossil fuels that the world runs on, uh, had anticipated um, the end of their, their boom years as a result of climate change and you know, solutions changing the way the world powers itself and had deliberately planned to transition into the manufacture of plastics to maintain their profit basis and the use for the products they're mining. Um, do you see any indication that big oil is, is flexing its muscles over this issue and is it interjecting and pushing its weight around to try and soften the language of, of such a treaty, which obviously would clobber a lot of their future business plans um, if, if that is the case? So... Yes, I suppose is the short <laughs> answer to that question. Um, you know, the that sec that section of the industry has been very present uh, throughout this process as well. So while I say that you know EIA and others have been following this very closely, you know, of course they have as well because the production of plastic is a huge ongoing and potential business opportunity for that sector. And let's not forget, you know, plastics are fossil fuels. That's what that's what they are. That's where they come from. Um, so the the thrust of what the industry messaging has been has really has really been to try and push the conversation, we say downstream. So what I mean by that is if the scope of the treaty talks about something like plastic production, the the real implication of that is essentially that 
we might be able to cap the production of certain plastics and phase them down um, because we know that plastic production is set to skyrocket and continue to do so. Um, and we'd like to see that capped. Um, obviously, the producers of plastic are less in favor of that um, because it's their business. Um, so they've been supportive of a treaty. So we've, you know, we've seen statements from World Plastics Council, Amer American Chemistry Council and others that they support a global agreement. But the nature of that agreement is yet to be determined. They've expressed support for the Japan proposal um, during various meetings that we've participated in. So we know that that's more where their thinking is. Um, but they've also tried to put, I guess, the, the burdens onto you know, the brands, the fast moving consumer goods companies, the people that are producing the plastic products. What's really fascinating for me is that those companies are actually starting to push back on that. Um, and they've really tried to set themselves apart from the, the production side of the industry and say, actually, you need to stop viewing the industry as one thing. It's many different actors with many different priorities. And if you think about the the brand risk that these companies like Coke experience because the plastic litter that you see on the beach is invariably identifiable. Um, and it's our got partners, their name all over it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so we're, you know, our partners from the Break Free From Plastic movement, they do this annual brand audit, which is basically where all around the world, people collect beach litter and then they, they essentially categorize which brand it was from. So if it's identifiable, they keep a record of that. And you see the same companies in the top 10 polluting brands every single year. Um, and they are the, the public face of plastic pollution. They're identifiable. Um, you know, they, they're called out for it. They have actions against them regularly. And I think that they, whilst they've set a lot of targets and they're now saying, actually, we want to see things like you know, restrictions on verging plastic production so that we can access, for example, um, cheaper recycler to make our products and meet our targets. Mm. They also want to kind of position the different parts of the industry separately from the way that I read that that action. Okay. Well, assuming um, the United does actually land on, on something um, over the next couple of weeks, what, what happens next? Um, so we will have a decision coming out of UNEA for better or worse, but I think hopefully for better. Um, and so then in theory, what would happen is that an INC is established and would start negotiating probably as early as autumn, the new treaty. Um, so there would be a series of sessions, um, so convenings where um, states get together and they start to negotiate the different topics of relevance to the treaty. You know, we know that there are issues that require significant work. So for example, the financial element. So what the financial mechanism of the treaty will look like, who's going to pay for it. This is a big topic. And we saw this at COP as well. This is a big topic, particularly for developing countries. So there'll be a lot of negotiations around these specific thematic areas. So that will take place over the next couple of years and then hopefully adopted by UNEA 6. So if all goes to plan, in the next two to three years, we could have a plastics treaty ready to go. Um, and of course, the NGO community, including EIA, is going to continue to push for the most ambitious treaty possible. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that, Chris. Thank you very much on behalf of everybody out there who can't be at Nairobi. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Hopefully when you're done, you can come back and we'll do this again and you can give us a catch up what actually happened there, yeah? My pleasure, yeah. Love to. Sweet. Well, thank you very much. You take care. Now, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eiainternational.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us and wherever you are, stay safe out there.